The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The title of today's sermon is Forgiveness According to Jesus. And what Jesus teaches us in this text is both eternally life-altering, but also incredibly practical on many day-to-day life circumstances. So let's pray that God will work through it as we go through the text this morning. To help you follow along with the sermon, here's how it's going to lay out. The first part, I'll just walk through the text as carefully as I can so that we can comprehend it. And then from that text, I think there are two key questions that we can extrapolate what Jesus teaches to change our life. And they are, what is forgiveness? And why should we forgive? So if you have a bulletin in front of you, that's the handout. That's where we're going. But don't worry if we don't get to the bulletin notes right away. First, we're going to go through the text. Then we'll come back and see how Jesus answers those questions for us. Look with me then, please, in God's word in verse 21. Then Peter came up. Don't miss the word then. Then, right after what? This is the second question in Matthew 18. The first question was, who is the greatest? Jesus answered that question in verses one through nine by saying the greatest is actually someone who humbles themselves and becomes like a child. In fact, if you won't do that, you can't even enter the kingdom. But then in verses 10 through 20, Jesus continues talking about how we treat someone who has childlike, humble, dependent faith. We pursue them. We, we do our best as a covenant community to ensure that we protect their soul, trusting that God ultimately is the one who preserves But here's now the second question Jesus faces in Matthew 18, and it's from Peter, the apostle Peter. Then Peter, in light of all that teaching, said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The question, how often, I think the best way to say it in English is up to what limiting point? So what's the ceiling? At what point is that? That's too much now. I think that's the best way we could put it in our verbiage. And notice then the phrase, will my brother But I think the key phrase actually is against me. You might recall if you were here last Sunday that I tried to point out that in verse 15, it says, if your brother sins, and some translations write, if your brother sins against you, but that doesn't have very good manuscript support. So actually verses 10 through 20 are just about any sin in the covenant community done by anybody. But now verse 21 through 35 is about when sin is done against you personally. Meaning today's passage is how do I respond when someone has hurt me individually? How do I respond when someone has sinned against me personally? That's the thrust of today's passage. And then Peter makes a proposal. Here's what I propose, Lord, would be the limiting ceiling to how often I would forgive someone who sinned against me personally. Let's continue now, verse 21. How often should I forgive him? And then Peter proposes, how about as many as seven times? Now, lest we're too hard on Peter (laughs) in our own minds here, it's helpful to know that the common rabbinic teaching in the first century was that you should forgive someone three times, but not a fourth. We have a somewhat similar American maxim, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me, or I just messed it up, didn't I? (laughs) Fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, right? The common rabbinic rule in Jesus' day was, all right, three times, but never a fourth. If they do something to you a fourth, that's it. The relationship's over. So when Peter proposes seven, he's doubling what the teaching of his day was. 
And also seven, as you know, is a common biblical metaphor for a complete set. So Peter is saying, how about we can forgive someone a complete set up to seven times? Now, Jesus' answer then is staggering. We can picture Peter's jaw dropping. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or some translations will write 70 times seven. Now, try to think about it this way. Peter is saying, how about a complete set? How about seven? Jesus says, I'll take your complete set and multiply it by all the complete sets. It'd be like in English if we said, how about 10 times? 10's like a complete number, right? And Jesus says, no, how about 10 times infinity? So an innumerable amount is actually Jesus' answer, which sounds wrong. Why would we forgive anybody an innumerable amount? And so to help us understand that, Jesus tells a parable, verse 23. Therefore, actually the Greek is therefore for this exact reason. So Jesus is going to tell a parable for the very reason of us understanding why we would forgive anybody an innumerable amount. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, Jesus tells a lot of parables, and parables often have stock characters, and this, this parable does. If you read a parable and there's a king, it's almost always representing God. There are servants, they represent people, and settling accounts represents the day of judgment. So here's a parable of a king and people and a day of judgment. Verse 24. So this king is ready to settle accounts. The day of judgment has come. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And no doubt your Bible probably has a footnote trying to give you a guesstimate of what 10,000 talents would be. But I think many of them are very unhelpful. They're trying to help. But because monetary value changes, whatever number they give you probably doesn't help very much. So let me try to explain it to you. The talent was the highest denomination of currency in the Roman Empire. And 10,000 is the highest number in the Greek language. It's the Greek word myrias, which is where we get our word myriad. All right, so the highest amount of money multiplied by the highest possible number available. What do you think that would mean mathematically? It's innumerable. So if your Bible says it'd be like a million, no, it's not like a million. Or it'd be like a billion. No, it's not like a billion. It's, it's a number you can't count. That's what he's actually trying to say. This man owes an incalculable, innumerable debt. It's beyond what you're able to count. Now, you should expect that to be the answer, right? Because Jesus just said, I'll take your complete number and multiply it by infinity. That's what this man owes. An innumerable amount that cannot be calculated. Verse 25, and since he, of course, he could not pay that amount, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, this verse might make you a little uncomfortable and you might squirm in your seat, but that's because of the cultural distance that we have between us and the first century. In our rubric, we have an employee-employer relationship Or we can think of chattel slavery and the sad testimony that we know of that. But indentured servitude is neither of those things. And indentured servitude was the most common way of dealing with debt for thousands of years in many different cultures because there was no bankruptcy. (laughs) There was no economic bailout. The only way to figure out debt was indentured servitude or to be thrown in a debtor's prison or to be killed. 
So indentured servitude was the most gracious way to deal with a debt that someone has. This man's debt is innumerable, but let me tell you what he and his family would have been able to recoup to the owner. The top of the indentured servitude market for a very able-bodied person was one talent. This man owes hundreds of thousands of talents. This man and his family would have maybe counted for a half of a talent because the bottom of the talent pool was one-tenth of a talent. So here, this man costs his master, his king, his owner, essentially everything. He recoups nothing. But now verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now I want to make sure you're not missing what he is saying. He's saying, no, instead of me going into indentured servitude and you recouping at least a little bit back, instead, trust me, you know, the guy who squandered an innumerable amount of wealth, Trust me to pay it back on my own. He's making a promise that, of course, he cannot keep. This is an innumerable amount, and he will in no way be able to recoup the debt that he has. The first century listener would have immediately thought, oh, he's really in for it now. <laughs> I mean, the king is now going to say, well, then off with your head. How dare you claim that you can repay what could never be repaid? But that's what makes verse 27 so staggering. And out of pity for him, it's the word for deeply felt love, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is sheer, costly, staggering grace. For the king to simply release him means that he will absorb the debt. The owner will, the king will. And this servant will recoup absolutely nothing in terms of what he's cost him. Now, if the story ended there and we rolled the credits, we'd all walk out of the theater smiling. <laughs> but the story doesn't end there. So look in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found. Stop there. Look at the words carefully. Notice the timing. But when, meaning immediately after he left, this same servant, so that you don't miss which servant we're talking about. And then notice, went out and found. Meaning though this servant has just been extended immeasurable grace, it hasn't transformed his character at all. And so he immediately seeks someone that he can grab something from. He sought one of his fellow servants, verse 28, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, 100 denarii is, of course, an incredibly amount less, a, a much, much smaller amount than what he owed. A hundred denarii is about what an entry-level job would make in three months. This man owes what he could not pay in thousands of lifetimes. But here's someone who owes him what he could make in about three months. Notice this is how he treats a fellow servant, though he was treated well by a superior. Notice the way he treats his servant. He seizes him. He chokes him. His anger shows his character. But now verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Do those words sound familiar? They're the same words this man uttered when he pleaded for the same thing. 
But unlike the wicked servant, this second servant owes an amount that actually is repayable. If he was to say, let me repay you 100 denarii, he actually could. But this servant tried to offer to repay something that he never could. And now verse 30, he refused because of his hardened heart and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Notice he did not allow him to be indentured because the price for an indentured servant was at least 500 denarii, meaning he would have gotten their money back right away. Instead, he put him in debtor's prison. Why? So that he could enjoy watching him suffer for a long time. He wanted to elongate the suffering of this person who he felt owed him. Now verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And now that the master knows the real character of this servant to whom he had extended this immeasurable gracious forgiveness, he deals with this servant in verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. I need to Greek out on you for just a second, okay? Verse 32 is not the same Greek word as verse 27, though in English, most translations translate both of them as debt. The word in verse 27 is danion. It's the word loan. If you have the CSB in front of you, it has the word loan. Meaning in verse 27, the king was willing to just chalk it off as a bad loan and incur all the debt on the king's account. But now verse 32, he's saying, no, now it's still your debt that you incur on yourself. This is now a debt that will be on your account. Verse 33, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Verse 34, in righteous anger, in righteous wrath, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which of course he never will. So he'll be there forever because he'll never pay off his debt. Now verse 35, the parable ends and Jesus now presses the point of application to his disciples. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. First notice, God is promising that the Heavenly Father will do this to everyone who refuses to forgive. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of a Heavenly Father who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly, and neither should we. Indeed, it is precisely because he is a God of such compassion and mercy that he cannot possibly accept as his own those devoid of compassion and mercy. Jesus is promising if we don't forgive, we will not be forgiven. Let me make sure I explain this as well as I can. Jesus is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. No one's salvation can be lost. He's teaching that if your heart does not extend forgiveness, then you have never actually received forgiveness. You have not received grace if you're not able to extend it to others. Notice verse 35 again. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart in the true depth of your inner being, meaning you must make a decision internally about you and your heart whether or not they respond correctly. 
So it's not actually about what they do in response. It's about you internally recognizing that you must forgive. Remember, this is a passage on personal forgiveness. All right, so we walk through the text. Now we're ready to answer the two questions. So if you have your bulletin, the first question, so then what is forgiveness? And here's how I trace it out in today's passage. In today's passage, I see three things that forgiveness is. Number one, forgiveness means you identify with the wrongdoer. Number two, forgiveness means you're willing to release the wrongdoer. And number three, forgiveness means you bear the debt caused by the wrongdoer. First, we must identify with the wrongdoer. Did you notice that the wicked servant would not forgive a fellow servant? He's a fellow servant just like he is. Do you know one of the reasons why we struggle to forgive one another? It's because we act as if we are the owner, the king, standing in a position over that other person, forgetting that actually we're not the owner and the king, but we're a fellow servant with that other person. So we're not in the position of standing over them. We're on the same footing as them. So here, the first thing to remember is to identify with the wrongdoer. So a good question to ask myself this morning. Do you think that you have the right to determine final punishment for anyone else? And if you do, then you think you're in the position of owner rather than servant. Also, the most important thing when you're reading a parable is to figure out what was the question that prompted the parable. Remember, the question was, how many times should I forgive my brother? Now, Jesus will tell us to forgive people who are not brother or sister. At the end of Matthew 5, Jesus says to bless those who curse you, to care for those who are even your enemy. But in this passage, he wants to remind us that there are times that your brother or sister will sin against you, but you still need to treat them as your brother or sister, as they eternally will be. They still remain your brother and sister. This passage then reminds us that we should be careful about assuming that we are unlike our brother or sister. How often when, someone's, when someone wrongs us do we think to ourselves, well, I would never do what they did to me. Meaning we think we are categorically different than our brother and sister, when in reality, we probably have done things to them just filtered through our proclivities, our weaknesses, our temptations. In reality, we should not forget our similarity. Miroslav Volf wrote this, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. I say, you're not even human. Even as I exclude myself, from the community of sinners. Surely I'm not like you. Jesus says, no, your fellow servants and your brother or sister. So number one, identify with the wrongdoer. Number two, though, as we saw in this text, release the wrongdoer. This person received immeasurable grace, but then that servant actually sought to find fault in a fellow servant. So rather than seeking to find fault in others, rather than rehearsing all the wrongs they've done to you. Isn't that amazing? As soon as being forgiven the debt, he walks out and remembers that someone else owed him. He's been mentally cataloging that for a long time. Rather than rehearsing the wrong that's been done to you, release the wrongdoer for the wrong that they've done. Forgiveness simply releases them. 
which leads to an obvious question. But how could I just release them? How could someone be let off the hook? Isn't there a cost for what they've done? The answer is yes. And that's why number three is bear the debt caused by the wrongdoer. In this text, the king bore the debt, was willing to bear the debt that the innumerable talents had accrued. But then the fellow servant was unwilling to bear the debt of this small amount of 100 denarii. Now, whether or not you wrong someone in a way that is economically trackable, the reality is all sin bears some debt that will be paid by someone, at least on an internal emotional level. Think about it this way. If someone does something that hurts you, you start to think that person owes me. And if you're not careful, you'll watch their life. And when things bad happen to them, you'll feel a little good about it because it's paying down the debt that you think they owe you. Over time, you'll think, you know what? They've treated me badly. I surely have the right to treat them badly, at least to the extent that they treated me badly. And then at some point, maybe we'll be even. Actually, to prove this to you even further, if you're really upset with someone that you think has really hurt you, and in your mind, you keep thinking about how much pain they deserve to go to until things are even. But then, out of the blue, they suffer a tragic calamity. Don't you immediately forgive them? Do you know why you do that? Because now you think you're even. Now they've experienced enough tragedy and loss that they've probably paid down the debt enough that we can treat each other well because they owe me. But now I've seen them suffer sufficiently. Forgiveness in this text means that we absorb the debt rather than trying to make the other person pay the debt. In fact, if you keep mulling over what somebody has done wrong, then you can never relate to them well because you'll keep thinking they owe me. But if you're willing to bear the debt and refrain from returning evil for evil and refrain from thinking about all that you think they owe you, it will cost you, it will hurt. There will be days that it's hard to not respond in kind. But over time, it'll get better and better because you're paying the debt. And then you'll be able to relate to them without that half wall of ice between you because you'll have paid it. See, something that's worth remembering is when you try to extract payment out of others, actually it always consumes you in the long run. This man, as soon as he was forgiven, he was thinking about someone else who owed him. When your heart posture is this other person owes me, it'll consume you in such a way that you can't live without thinking about it. Think of how many people have children, maybe they're young parents, and they think, you know what, my parents did so many things wrong, and I'm going to raise my children better than my parents did. My parents made me do this, they made me do that, but you know what, their grandchildren will never do those things. Ha ha, I win. Well, it sounds like you're still being controlled by your parents, actually. So the, the thing that's consuming you still has incredible control over you. Now, debt can't go away. You're going to pay it, or you're going to try to make them pay it. If you return evil for evil, you'll try to make them pay it. If you forgive, you'll pay it. Now, this maybe is a point in the sermon where I should explain a couple caveats and cautions, knowing that this morning we can't talk about everything that forgiveness is. Let me first say this. I do know that in real life, these situations become very messy. And I know this morning's sermon can't touch on everything related to that. So let me say, if 
maybe there's something significant that you need to talk through with a Christian counselor or a Christian pastor, I encourage you to do so. But I'll give you a couple quick reminders of what forgiveness is not. In the Bible, forbearance and forgiveness are not exactly the same. Forbearance generally means that you put up with perceived annoyances in someone else and you just extend grace to them. Forgiveness is different. Forgiveness is when you've been demonstrably sinned against. But forgiveness does not mean excusing egregious acts or encouraging someone to continue abuse or something like that. It also does not insist that reconciliation happen or that restoration occur. Notice Jesus said in verse 35, forgive them from your heart. That may not mean that relationship is reconciled. That depends on their response. Forgiveness also doesn't necessarily remove legal consequences. You can say, I forgive you, and you'll spend the rest of your life in prison, and those are not mutually exclusive. But forgiveness does cost us because it means we lay down the right to exact a cost from the offender that we believe they owe us. So forgiveness does not pervert justice into vengeance. Forgiveness knows that reconciliation may not happen. But forgiveness is a disposition of the heart that you extend whether or not the person asks you to forgive them. This week I listened to Vanitha Rendell Risner, and she is worth looking up if you want to listen to more of this. Her husband was serially adulterous, and she wrote about her forgiveness of her husband. She had a lot of helpful things to say, but I liked her definition of forgiveness. Here's what it was. My definition of forgiveness is giving up the right to hurt you for hurting me. Giving up the right to hurt you for hurting me. Now in this passage, why should we forgive? First, because in verse 22, Jesus commands us to forgive someone even an innumerable amount. But second, and perhaps most chillingly because of verse 35. Because if we will not forgive our brother from our heart, our heavenly father could not call us his own because it means we in fact have not received the kind of grace that he's extended to us. But I think in this passage we'll also have a picture of what happens in your life if you refuse to forgive. First, if we refuse to forgive, we become short-tempered with others. Look again in verse 28. After the man was extended incredible grace, instead he found someone else and seized him and began to choke him. His refusal to forgive had actually twisted his own character. In English, we uh, have words that have an Anglo-Saxon history, and so they have all these root words that are combined. One of the words is wrath. In the Bible, we have righteous wrath or we have sinful wrath. The word wrath has the same root word as wreath. The reason they have the same root word is because just like a wreath twist. So sinful wrath twists and distorts your character. There's a third root word they share in common, and it's the word wraith, which you may know if you've read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the ring race. It's because it's like a ghost that haunts you. When you have righteous anger towards someone, you trust the Lord, but when you have sinful anger towards someone, it twists you and it haunts you. Hebrews tells us this in chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble, and by it many become defiled. Hebrews tells us that if I nurture my angry 
my bitterness towards someone, it corrupts me. I like the way Frederick Beekner put us when he wrote this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last twosome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back, in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. When we refuse to forgive, it actually causes us to hurt ourselves. Secondly, when we refuse to forgive, we distort and exaggerate the failures of others while blindly excusing our own. Look in verse 29. The fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. Now that's the exact same words this wicked servant said earlier. How is it that he has no compassion on the exact same struggle that he had? Because he doesn't see himself in that other person anymore. Have you ever noticed that um, political cartoons, when they draw a politician, especially if they don't like that politician very well, (laughs) they figure out a facial feature that they have that's not their best feature, and then they exaggerate it tremendously. So if you have kind of big ears, well, your political cartoon, they're going to be flying Dumbo ears, you know. (laughs) The political cartoon takes your worst feature and exaggerates it. That's what we do when we're unwilling to forgive. You find that person's worst fault and then you make so much of it that at some point you actually truly think that you're different from them. You don't even hear them saying the same words that you once said. In verse 29, the man is simply asking for the same thing this man asked for. But no longer can he see him as a fellow servant or a brother. This is why the third thing that happens when we refuse to forgive is our heart hardens. Look in verse 30. He refused. Eventually, over time, you'll become so calloused that you can't forgive. To be candid with you, this is the kind of passage that when you read it, it's easy to think, oh, a passage on forgiveness. I don't need that one. I don't have any problems there, which is probably prima facie evidence that we definitely need this one. (laughs) This is the one we need. Have you noticed that some people as they age become more compassionate and more sweet and other people as they age, they become harder and harsher? That refusal to forgive impacts your pity or lack thereof with everyone else. So verse 30, he refused and put him in prison, as we can so easily do with people relationally. But what happens when we do forgive? Look in verse 35 again. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, what will he do? He will throw you into prison where your debt will be paid. But flip the verse the other way. What will he do if you do forgive your brother from your heart? You will commune with him eternally. Which is why I write finally, what happens when we do forgive? We commune with our Father in heaven. Now, you could be thinking at this point, all right, I think I get the point of the sermon. Don't be a wicked servant. Be a good servant. There are lots of beneficial reasons to forgive. It will help relational harmony. I guess I'll try my hardest to do that next week. And if we try, we'll fail. 
Because this sermon only has any help, this teaching only has any power if you understand where the power to forgive comes from. It comes not from trying not to be a wicked servant, but from trying to be a good servant. It comes from realizing that the owner became a servant to bear the debt the servants had caused. See, what the rest of Matthew will show us is that this parable that Jesus is just introducing here is lived out by Jesus in his earthly life. When the king of kings humbles himself and comes in the form of a servant to bear the debt caused by the servant so that he can release the servants of their debt. Look at the three points that I brought up before about what forgiveness is. Forgiveness first is to identify with the wrongdoer. Have you ever paused and worshiped in Hebrews 2, verse 11, when the Bible says, Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers. In verse 14, it says that Jesus became flesh and blood so that he could die for the sake of those who are children of flesh. See, when we won't forgive, we try to show how different we are from people and distance ourselves from them. Yet God the Son came in human flesh so he could have similarity and draw near to us. Second, God the Son released us from our wrongdoing. And he did that, number three, by bearing the debt personally in his own body. In fact, on the cross, before Jesus died, he cried out, it is finished. Meaning that all the debt that we had accrued, he had once for all perfectly paid. See, the power to forgive comes from that key phrase that the master said to the servant, you wicked servant, how could you not do for others what I had done for you. The power to forgive is recognizing how big my debt is and yet how gracious the king is to come as a servant and bear my debt and remove it. When that power comes home to you, its practical implications are immense. There are so many great examples from church history, but one of my favorite is from recent history, and that's from Rachel Den Hollander. You maybe have read her story. She was a victim, one of the hundreds of victims, of sexual abuse of Larry Nasser, who was an Olympic doctor who abused children and young girls for a very, very long time. But Rachel Den Hollander is a Christian, and she was the very first person to come out and to publicly call out what Larry had done and its sinfulness of it. For her to do so meant that she is bearing the debt of his sin by bringing it to the light at incredible personal cost. But when she did so and she stood before everyone on trial with the Bible, she said this. She said, the Bible carries a final judgment. She said this to Larry as she was looking at him where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. Here she is offering to her abuser the grace and mercy of Christ because she could identify we're both sinners to whom God has offered forgiveness through his son, Jesus. Forgiveness is only possible if you understand what the owner has done for the sake of the servants. And if you do understand it, 
It radically changes how you view others who have wronged you. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, thank you for a short but profound parable that Jesus Christ teaches us to get across a point that we could try to equivocate from on a myriad of reasons. We can think of many reasons not to forgive or many qualifications that essentially kill forgiveness by death of a thousand qualifications. Of course, we do want to be careful that we don't confuse forgiveness into thinking that we encourage sinfulness to continue. Surely we don't want to do that. Nor do we expect that forgiveness will always result in reconciliation or even restoration. But this parable focuses on our heart and in our inner heart, our willingness to release someone from what we think they owe us. Remind us this morning that we actually have a lot more in common with the fellow sinner than we want to believe we do. Remind us also that rather than rehearsing all the wrongs they've done against us, that we can release them. And remind us, Lord, that to do so will be costly. To quote Jesus from somewhere else, we will have to turn the other cheek, so to speak, and experience that pain. But the only power for that pain, Lord, is to remember that Jesus Christ was not ashamed to identify with us. Indeed, he was crucified between criminals. That God promises not to rehearse, but to release us from our sin. He chooses to forget it. He remembers it no more. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And furthermore, the debt is paid not by us, but by Jesus. Perhaps someone this morning is thinking, God, I can be good enough. I can repay the debt. Help them to see themselves in the parable. That's like the man who owes an innumerable amount saying, I'll pay you back. Of course you won't. No one could ever earn salvation. It's a debt infinitely beyond our ability to pay because we've defamed the infinite glory of our creator. So Lord, remind us this morning that our sin is much, much worse than we think it is so that we can realize that your grace is much, much greater than we commonly realize. And through that power, enable us to be people of the kingdom who extend grace that makes no sense other from a supernatural cause. And thank you for brothers and sisters who do that and have done that in many ways as a testimony to your glory. Equip us by your power. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.